Section 65 of The History of Chemistry. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Avai in September 2015. The History of Chemistry by Thomas Thompson. Volume 2, Chapter 6 of the Atomic Theory, Part 2. John Dalton, to whose lot it has fallen to produce such an alteration and improvement in chemistry, was born in Westmoreland and belongs to that small and virtuous sect known in this country by the name of Quakers. When very young he lived with Mr. Gow of Kendall, a blind philosopher, to whom he read and whom he assisted in his philosophical investigation. It was here, probably, that he acquired a considerable part of his education, particularly his taste for mathematics. For Mr. Gow was remarkably fond of mathematical investigations, and has published several mathematical papers that do him credit. From Kendall, Mr. Dalton went to Manchester, about the beginning of the present century, and commenced teaching elementary mathematics to such young men as felt inclined to acquire some knowledge of that important subject. In this way, together with a few courses of lectures on chemistry, which he has occasionally given at the Royal Institution in London, at the Institution in Birmingham, in Manchester, and once in Edinburgh and in Glasgow, he has contrived to support himself for more than thirty years, if not in affluence, at least in perfect independence. And as his desires have always been of the most moderate kind, his income has always been equal to his wants. In a country like this, where so much wealth abounds, and where so handsome a yearly income was subscribed to enable Dr. Priestley to prosecute his investigations undisturbed and undistracted by the necessity of providing for the daily wants of his family, there is little doubt that Mr. Dalton, had he so chosen it, might, in point of pecuniary circumstances, have exhibited a much more brilliant figure. But he has displayed a much nobler mind by the career which he has chosen, equally regardless of riches as the most celebrated sages of antiquity, and as much respected and beloved by his friends, even in the rich commercial town of Manchester, as if he were one of the greatest and most influential men in the country. Towards the end of the last century, a literary and scientific society had been established in Manchester, of which Mr. Thomas Henry, the translator of Lavoisier's essays, and who distinguished himself so much in promoting the introduction of the new mode of bleaching into Lancashire, was long president. Mr. Dalton, who had already distinguished himself by his meteorological observations, and particularly by his account of the Aurora Borealis, soon became a member of the Society, and in the fifth volume of their memoirs, Part Two, published in 1802, six papers of his were inserted, which laid the foundation of his future celebrity. These papers were chiefly connected with meteorological subjects, but by far the most important of them all was the one entitled Experimental Essays on the Constitution of Mixed Gases, on the force of steam or vapour from water and other liquids in different temperatures, both in a Torricellian vacuum and in air, 
on evaporation, and on the expansion of gases by heat. From a careful examination of all the circumstances, he considered himself as entitled to infer that when two elastic fluids or gases, A and B, are mixed together, there is no mutual repulsion among their particles, that is, the particles of A do not repel those of B as they do one another. Consequently, the pressure or whole weight upon any one particle arises solely from those of its own kind. This doctrine is of so startling a nature and so contrary to the opinions previously received that chemists have not been much disposed to admit it. But at the same time it must be confessed that no one has hitherto been able completely to refute it. The consequences of admitting it are obvious. We should be able to account for a fact which has been long known, though no very satisfactory reason for it had been assigned, namely, that if two gases be placed in two separate vessels, communicating by a narrow orifice and left at perfect rest in a place where the temperature never varies, if we examine them after a certain interval of time, we shall find both equally diffused through both vessels. If we fill a glass phial with hydrogen gas and another phial with common air or carbonic acid gas, and unite the two phials by a narrow glass tube two feet long, filled with common air, and place the phial containing the hydrogen gas uppermost and the other perpendicularly below it, the hydrogen, though lightest, will not remain in the upper phial, nor the carbonic acid, though heaviest, in the undermost phial but we shall find both gases equally diffused through both phials. But the second of these essays is by far the most important. In it he establishes, by the most unexceptionable evidence, that water, when it evaporates, is always converted into an elastic fluid, similar in its properties to air. But that the distance between the particles is greater the lower the temperature is at which the water evaporates. The elasticity of this vapor increases as the temperature increases. At 32 degrees it is capable of balancing a column of mercury about half an inch in height, and at 212 degrees it balances a column 30 inches high, or it is then equal to the pressure of the atmosphere. He determined the elasticity of vapor at all temperatures from 32 degrees to 212 degrees, pointed out the method of determining the quantity of vapor that at any time exists in the atmosphere, the effect which it has upon the volume of air, and the mode of determining its quantity. Finally, he determined, experimentally, the rate of evaporation from the surface of water at all temperatures from 32 degrees to 212 degrees. These investigations have been of infinite use to chemists in all their investigations respecting the specific gravity of gases, and have enabled them to resolve various interesting problems, both respecting specific gravity, evaporation, rain and respiration, which, had it not been for the principles laid down in this essay, would have eluded their grasp. In the last essay contained in this paper, he has shown that all elastic fluids expend the same quantity by the same addition of heat, 
and this expansion is very nearly one four hundred eightieth part for every degree of Fahrenheit's thermometer. In this last branch of the subject, Mr. Dalton was followed by Gay-Lussac, who, about half a year after the appearance of his essays, published a paper in the Annales de Chimie, showing that the expansion of all elastic fluids, when equally heated, is the same. Mr. Dalton concluded that the expansion of all elastic fluids by heat is equable and this opinion has been since confirmed by the important experiments of Doulon and Petit, which have thrown much additional light on the subject. In the year 1804, on the 26th of August, I spent a day or two at Manchester and was much with Mr. Dalton. At that time he explained to me his notions respecting the composition of bodies. I wrote down at the time the opinions which he offered, and the following account is taken literally from my journal of that date. The ultimate particles of all simple bodies are atoms incapable of further division. These atoms, at least viewed along with their atmospheres of heat, are all spheres, and are each of them possessed of particular weights, which may be denoted by numbers. For the greater clearness he represented the atoms of the simple bodies by symbols. The following are his symbols for four simple bodies, together with the numbers attached to them by him in 1804. Circle, Oxygen, Relative Weight, 6.5 Dotted Circle, Hydrogen, Relative Weight, 1 Black Disc, Carbon relative weight 5 circle with line azote relative weight 5 the following symbols represent the way in which he thought these atoms were combined to form certain binary compounds with the weight of an integrant particle of each compound circle dotted circle water weight 7.5 Circle, circle with line, nitrous gas, weight, 11.5. Black disc, dotted circle, olefiant gas, weight, 6. Circle with line, dotted circle, ammonia, weight, 6. Circle, black disc, carbonic oxide, weight, 11.5. The following were the symbols by which he represented the composition of certain tertiary compounds. Circle, black disc, circle, carbonic acid, weight, 18. Circle, circle with line, circle, nitrous oxide, weight, 16.5. Black disc, dotted circle, black disc, ether, weight, 11. Dotted circle, black disc, dotted circle, carburetted hydrogen, weight, 7. Circle, circle with line, circle, nitric acid, weight, 18. A quaternary compound, in two rows. First row, circle, circle with line, circle. Second row, 
empty, circle, empty. Oxynitric acid, weight, 24.5. A quinquinary compound in four columns. First column, circle with line. Second column, on top of each other, circle, circle. Third column, circle with line. Fourth column, circle. Nitrous acid, weight, 29.5. A sextenary compound in a 2 by 3 matrix. First row, black disc, circle, black disc. Second row, dotted circle, black disc, dotted circle. Alcohol, weight, 23.5. These symbols are sufficient to give the reader an idea of the notions entertained by Dalton respecting the nature of compounds. Water is a compound of one atom oxygen and one atom hydrogen, as it is obvious from the symbol circle, dotted circle. Its weight 7.5 is that of an atom of oxygen and an atom of hydrogen united together. In the same way, carbonic oxide is a compound of one atom oxygen and one atom carbon. Its symbol is circle, black disc, and its weight 11.5 is equal to an atom of oxygen and an atom of carbon added together. Carbonic acid is a tertiary compound, or it consists of three atoms united together, namely two atoms of oxygen and one atom of carbon. Its symbol is circle, black disc, circle, and its weight 18. A bare inspection of the symbols and weights will make Mr. Dalton's notions respecting the constitution of everybody in the table evident to every reader. It was this happy idea of representing the atoms and constitution of bodies by symbols that gave Mr. Dalton's opinions so much clearness. I was delighted with the new light which immediately struck my mind, and saw at a glance the immense importance of such a theory, when fully developed. Mr. Dalton informed me that the atomic theory first occurred to him during his investigations of olefiant gas and carburetted hydrogen gases, at that time imperfectly understood, and the constitution of which was first fully developed by Mr. Dalton himself. It was obvious from the experiments which he made upon them that the constituents of both were carbon and hydrogen, and nothing else. He found further that if we reckon the carbon in each the same, then carburetted hydrogen gas contains exactly twice as much hydrogen as olefiant gas does. This determined him to state the ratios of these constituents in numbers and to consider the olefiant gas as a compound of one atom of carbon and one atom of hydrogen, and carburetted hydrogen of one atom of carbon and two atoms of hydrogen. The idea thus conceived was applied to carbonic oxide, water, ammonia, etc., and numbers representing the atomic weights of oxygen, azote, etc., deduced from the best analytical experiments which chemistry then possessed. Let not the reader suppose that this was an easy task. Chemistry at that time did not possess a single analysis which could be considered as even approaching to accuracy. 
A vast number of facts had been ascertained, and a fine foundation laid for future investigation, but nothing, as far as weight and measure were concerned, deserving the least confidence, existed. We need not be surprised, then, that Mr. Dalton's first numbers were not exact. It required infinite sagacity, and not a little labour, to come so near the truth as he did. How could accurate analyses of gases be made when there was not a single gas whose specific gravity was known, with even an approach to accuracy? The preceding investigations of Dalton himself paved the way for accuracy in this indispensable department, but still accurate results had not yet been obtained. In the third edition of my System of Chemistry, published in 1807, I introduced a short sketch of Mr. Dalton's theory, and thus made it known to the chemical world. The same year a paper of mine on oxalate acid was published in the Philosophical Transactions, in which I showed that oxalic acid unites in two proportions with strontium, forming an oxalate and binoxalate, and that, supposing the strontium and both salts to be the same, the oxalate acid in the latter is exactly twice as much as in the former. About the same time, Dr. Wollaston showed that bicarbonate of potash contains just twice the quantity of carbonic acid that exists in carbonate of potash, and that there are three oxalates of potash, that is, oxalate, binoxalate, and quadroxalate, the weight of acids in each of which are as the numbers 1, 2, 4. These facts gradually drew the attention of chemists to Mr. Dalton's views. There were, however, some of our most eminent chemists who were very hostile to the atomic theory. The most conspicuous of these was Sir Humphrey Davy. In the autumn of 1807 I had a long conversation with him at the Royal Institution, but could not convince him that there was any truth in the hypothesis. A few days after I dined with him at the Royal Society Club, at the Crown and Anchor, in the Strand. Dr. Wollaston was present at the dinner. After dinner every member of the club left the tavern, except Dr. Wollaston, Mr. Davy, and myself, who stayed behind and had tea. We sat about an hour and a half together, and our whole conversation was about the atomic theory. Dr. Wollaston was a convert as well as myself, and we tried to convince Davy of the inaccuracy of his opinions but, so far from being convinced, he went away, if possible, more prejudiced against it than ever. Soon after, Davy met Mr. Davis Gilbert, the late distinguished president of the Royal Society, and he amused him with a caricature description of the atomic theory, which he exhibited in so ridiculous a light that Mr. Gilbert was astonished how any man of sense or science could be taken in with such a tissue of absurdities. Mr. Gilbert called on Dr. Wollaston, probably to discover what could have induced a man of Dr. Wollaston's sagacity and caution to adopt such opinions, and was not sparing in laying the absurdities of the theory, such as they had been represented to him by Davy, in the broadest point of view. Dr. Wollaston begged Mr. Gilbert to sit down and listen to a few facts which he would state to him. He then went over all the principal facts at that time known respecting the salts, 
mentioned the alkaline carbonates and bicarbonates, the oxalate, binoxalate and quadroxalate of potash, carbonic oxide and carbonic acid, olefiant gas and carburetted hydrogen, and doubtless many other similar compounds in which the proportion of one of the constituents increases in a regular ratio. Mr. Gilbert went away a convert to the truth of the atomic theory, and he had the merit of convincing Davy that his former opinions of the subject were wrong. What arguments he employed I do not know, but they must have been convincing ones, for Davy ever after became a strenuous supporter of the atomic theory. The only alteration which he made was to substitute proportion for Dalton's word atom. Dr. Wollaston substituted for it the term equivalent. The object of these substitutions was to avoid all theoretical enunciations. But, in fact, these terms, proportion, equivalent, are neither of them so convenient as the term atom, and unless we adopt the hypothesis with which Dalton set out, namely that the ultimate particles of bodies are atoms incapable of further division, and that chemical combination consists in the union of these atoms with each other, we lose all the new light which the atomic theory throws upon chemistry, and bring our notions back to the obscurity of the days of Bergman and of Berthollet. In the year 1808, Mr. Dalton published the first volume of his New System of Chemical Philosophy. This volume consists chiefly of two chapters. The first, on heat, occupies 140 pages. In it, he treats of all the effects of heat, and shows the same sagacity and originality which characterize all his writings. Even when his opinions on a subject are not correct, his reasoning is so ingenious and original, and the new facts which he contrives to bring forward so important, that we are always pleased and always instructed. The second chapter on the Constitution of Bodies occupies seventy pages. The chief object of it is to combat the peculiar notions respecting elastic fluids which had been advanced by Berthollet and supported by Dr. Murray of Edinburgh. In the third chapter, on chemical synthesis, which occupies only a few pages, he gives us the outlines of the atomic theory, such as he had conceived it. In a plate at the end of the volume he exhibits the symbols and atomic weights of thirty-seven bodies, twenty of which were then considered as simple, and the other seventeen as compound. The following table shows the atomic weight of the simple bodies, as he at that time had determined them from the best analytical experience that had been made. Hydrogen, weight of atom, 1. Azote, weight of atom, 5. Carbon, weight of atom, 5. Oxygen, weight of atom, 7. Phosphorus, weight of atom, 9. Sulfur, weight of atom, 13. Magnesia, weight of atom, 20. Lime, weight of atom, 23. Soda, weight of atom, 28. Potash, weight of atom, 42. Strontium, weight of atom, 
46. Barites, weight of atom, 68. Iron, weight of atom, 38. Zinc, weight of atom, 56. Copper, weight of atom, 56. Lead, weight of atom, 95. Silver, weight of atom, 100. Platinum, weight of atom, 100. Gold, weight of atom, 140. Mercury, weight of atom, 167. He had made choice of hydrogen for unity because it is the lightest of all bodies. He was of opinion that the atomic weights of all other bodies are multiples of hydrogen, and accordingly they are all expressed in whole numbers. He had raised the atomic weight of oxygen from 6.5 to 7 from a more careful examination of the experiments on the component parts of water. Davy, from a more accurate set of experiments, soon after raised the number for oxygen to 7.5, and Dr. Prout, from a still more careful investigation of the relative specific gravities of oxygen and hydrogen, showed that if the atom of hydrogen be 1, that of oxygen must be 8. Everything conspires to prove that this is the true ratio between the atomic weights of oxygen and hydrogen. In 1810 appeared the second volume of Mr. Dalton's new system of chemical philosophy. In it he examines the elementary principles or simple bodies, namely oxygen, hydrogen, azote, carbon, sulphur, phosphorus, and the metals, and the compounds consisting of two elements, namely the compounds of oxygen with hydrogen, azote, carbon, sulphur, phosphorus, of hydrogen with azote, carbon, sulphur, phosphorus. Finally, he treats of the fixed alkalis and earths. All these combinations are treated of with infinite sagacity, and he endeavors to determine the atomic weights of the different elementary substances. Nothing can exceed the ingenuity of his reasoning. But unfortunately at that time very few accurate chemical analyses existed and in chemistry no reasoning, however ingenious, can compensate for this indispensable datum. Accordingly, his table of atomic weights at the end of this second volume, though much more complete than that at the end of the first volume, is still exceedingly defective. Indeed, no one number can be considered as perfectly correct. The third volume of the new system of chemical philosophy was only published in 1827, but the greatest part of it had been printed nearly ten years before. It treats of the metallic oxides, the sulphurets, phosphorets, carburets, and alloys. Doubtless many of the facts contained in it were new when the sheets were put to the press, but during the interval between the printing and publication, almost the whole of them had not merely been anticipated, but the subject carried much further. By far the most important part of the volume is the appendix, consisting of about 90 pages in which he discusses, with his usual sagacity, various important points connected with heat and vapour. In page 352 he gives a new table of the atomic weights of bodies, 
much more copious than those contained in the two preceding volumes, and into which he has introduced the corrections necessary from the numerous correct analyses which had been made in the interval. He still adheres to the ratio 1 to 7 as the correct difference between the weights of the atoms of hydrogen and oxygen. This shows very clearly that he has not attended to the new facts which have been brought forward on the subject. No person who has attended to the experiments made on the specific gravity of these two gases during the last twelve years could admit that these specific gravities are to each other as 1 to 14. If 1 to 16 be not the exact ratio, it will surely be admitted on all hands that it is infinitely near it. Mr. Dalton represented the weight of an atom of hydrogen by one because it is the lightest of bodies. In this, he has been followed by the chemists of the Royal Institution, by Mr. Phillips, Dr. Henry, and Dr. Turner, and perhaps some others whose names I do not at present recollect. Dr. Wollaston, in his paper on chemical equivalents, represented the atomic weight of oxygen by one, because it enters into a greater number of combinations than any other substance, and this plan has been adopted by Berzelius, by myself, and by the greater number, if not the whole, of the chemists on the continent. Perhaps the advantage which Dr. Wollaston assigned for making the atom of oxygen unity will ultimately disappear, for there is no reason for believing that the other supporters of combustion are not capable of entering into as many compounds as oxygen. But, from the constitution of the atmosphere, it is obvious that the compounds into which oxygen enters will always be of more importance to us than any others, and in this point of view it may be attended with considerable convenience to have oxygen represented by one. In the present state of the atomic theory, there is another reason for making the atom of oxygen unity, which I think of considerable importance. Chemists are not yet agreed about the atom of hydrogen. Some consider water a compound of one atom of oxygen and two atoms of hydrogen, others of one atom of oxygen and one atom of hydrogen. According to the first view, the atom of hydrogen is only one-sixteenth of the weight of an atom of oxygen, according to the second, it is one-eighth. If, therefore, we were to represent the atom of hydrogen by one, the consequence would be that two tables of atomic weights would be requisite, all the atoms in one being double the weight of the atoms in the other, whereas, if we make the atom of oxygen unity, it will be the atom of hydrogen only that will differ in the two tables. In the one table it will be 0 0.125, in the other it will be 0 0.0625, or, reckoning with Berzelius, the atom of oxygen equals 100, we have that of hydrogen equals 12.5 or 6.25, according as we view water to be a compound of one atom of oxygen with one or two atoms of hydrogen. End of section 65